Welcome to Own the Future, a podcast dialoguing with creatives and entrepreneurs to better understand who we are, the work that we do, and how we can shape and own our futures and thereby the future. My name is Lucas Scrobot, and today we have a special guest, Dr. Michael Wesch. But you can call him Mike. Mike has his PhD from the University of Virginia. And one thing that you should know about Mike is that in 2007, he created a little YouTube video and sent it to a couple of his colleagues the week before the Super Bowl. And on Super Bowl weekend, his video went viral and totally beat out all of the Super Bowl ads. Mike, it is great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks. Uh, 2007 sounds like so long ago now. <laughs> I'm just like <laughs> saying the words. It's like <laughs> it, it. It was long ago. It was a lot yeah, back then. You know, for context, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, I'm tempted to say, you know, there are only like 12 videos on the internet back then, and so going viral wasn't a big deal. But now they're actually uh, that was an interesting time because it was just really the dawn of YouTube, and uh, that video I made was also kind of one of the first academic videos that, you know, really had any sort of substance that went viral. So uh, it's an interesting time just to think back, you know, that that's, it's only 11 years ago and yet it seems so long ago it's, and things were, things were so different. Yeah. Things, things were very different. It was, it was the dawn of YouTube. Um, as you talked about, what were some of the things that were going through your mind as, you know, you're refreshing the page and you beat out all of the Super Bowl commercials? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there was some like selfish hope <laughs> that, that I, that I could like rise to the top. So back then they actually had these really clear metrics of like, uh, which videos were the most viral, you know, so these websites you could go to, uh, like Technorati used to keep track of these things. And so I think what was going through my mind was like it, it that how interesting it was that I was sitting in this basement uh, on a very cheap laptop that had produced the whole video. So I produced the whole video on this very, very cheap laptop and I was going up against million dollar productions. And it was really just so uh, emblematic of that moment that I could sit in a basement in Kansas in, uh, on a farm, you know, in, in this rural area on this little laptop and actually reach more people uh, than, than these folks who were spending a million dollars on the production and then furthermore spending $2.6 million on actually putting the video out there uh, on the Super Bowl. So that, that really sort of signaled that, that the content of the video was uh, supported by, by its flourishing, you know, because the content of the video was about how what was called Web 2.0 at that point uh, that how Web 2.0 was was changing the landscape of of media production and media distribution, and so I, I, it was just kind of a, a neat sort of moment there. Yeah, right. Isn't isn't almost iconic of like a, a a picture of the the shift that was happening within culture that here you're producing um, material that is kind of more heavy in in nature compared to all these Super Bowl ads. And it's you on a farm with zero budget, but yet your content 
reach more people and beat them even in the metrics in the short run. Yeah. And, and, you know, it became iconic uh, for quite some time. And I think there were so many of us at that time that thought, you know, wow, this is a harbinger of the future. This is really interesting. Uh, and we, we were really excited, you know, like I think there was a lot of hype at that time that the internet was going to transform uh, our culture and transform the way we think that we were going to move toward uh, sort of deeper material and and unleash the masses to let them say uh, what they what they really wanted to say. We were moving away from a medium that went from the networks to the masses to a very different kind of, of network. Right. And at that time, I think it was nothing but hopefulness. And I actually remember it was just a few months after that video went viral, I was invited to Austria uh, and we had this little get together with a, with, you know, about a dozen people kind of brainstorming, you know, where does this go? What's the future going to look like? And one of those dozen people was Evgeny Morozov, uh, who at that time was, running a blogging network in Belarus and, and Belarus uh, had this sort of at, at that time, Evgeny was very intent on enabling this blogging network to talk back to the dictatorship and the dictatorship was essentially saying, uh, trying to shut down all sorts of free speech and whatnot. Wow. So he was being very successful and he was very excited about how web 2.0 might change that dynamic. But then over the next few years, what he found was that that dictatorship, as well as many others, were actually using the same tools to propagate misinformation as well as to silence people. And he, be, he went the other direction. And if you, if you look at his work uh, today, you know, he, he made a total flip and is now very pessimistic about the uses of technology really? in terms of how they could unleash freedom and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, he just points out that these things are as much empowering uh, the tyrants as they are uh, any sort of uh, people looking to uh, expand freedom and, and equality and those kinds of things. So, yeah, so it's uh, we live in interesting times for sure. And what's your take on it? I mean, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, it did seem like anything was possible. But now looking back, um, do, do you feel like the internet and web 2.0 and now, you know, the, the internet of things, do you think it's changing it for the better and creating deeper connections or deeper content, heavier content, or do you think, um, are you a little skeptical? <laughs> it's just so, uh, it's just very complex and it's, and it's, and it's very different than I expected. I think back then I, uh, you know, I don't think any of us could have really understood what would happen. And we all knew it would be very disruptive. And it's interesting to see how those disruptions have played out over time. And I th obviously in ways that people could have never predicted. Right. Uh, cultural phenomena is always that way, right? It's always too complex to predict. But just to give you uh, one example in terms of higher education, uh, higher education is because I work in it is something I think a lot about. And the moment Web 2.0 came on the scene, there was this sense like, oh, goodness, this is really going to shake things up in higher ed. You know, if people have free 
access to really high quality information. You know, Wikipedia was on the rise in 2007. Yeah. And there was a sense that, man, if you unleash people to collaborate freely and they can create the world's best encyclopedia, what's to say they're not also going to be able to create the world's best content in all fields? Absolutely. So, so what's the role of a, of a university professor when you have like extraordinary content, uh, you know, that that's just just it blows away any sort of lecture or that kind of thing. So there were these thoughts of like, okay, how, what are we going to do? Maybe we need to think more about advising and mentorship. Maybe that's our future role, you know, so that we, we get the content online, but then we, we do the sort of the hard stuff where we're mentoring people toward uh, higher level, um, uh, higher levels in their fields. And what's interesting is that I think at that, at that time we thought, that higher ed would change and that change would happen inside higher ed somehow. Like, like, you know, university presidents would wake up and be like, Oh, you know, like let's get on board and change things. Uh, and that hasn't happened. And so here we are 10 years later, 11 years later, and you can look around and and you see the same old institutions and you're like, well, nothing's really changed. But then you look around and you say, wait a minute, like how much, education is happening on YouTube right now. Like just, totally. it's a, it's astounding. Right. Totally. And, and so from a, from a wider view, uh, you could start to say like, man, there, there's definitely some hits being taken to higher ed and higher ed still isn't really aware of it. Uh, and they're going to have to become aware of it very soon. Enrollments have dropped the last three years, uh, in the United States. They're continuing to drop. I think, there's going to be kind of an awakening here where we start to realize that a lot of people are getting what they want out of education in other places. And, uh, do you think and, that we're in the middle of a, a tipping point where the scales haven't tipped yet, but the tide has shifted and higher ed institutions might wake up in 10, 15, 20 years with, um, uh, a rude awakening. Yeah, I think it's I think it's even more sort of interesting than that in that uh, the forces are already impinging upon us. Right. And so there are these like minor sort of adjustments happening. Like my life has changed. For example, I teach more online classes because there's demand for it from students, of course. And and it's funny because. You know, I think what's different is like, while there might have been an expectation that there would be like this guided vision, uh, there is no guided vision. And instead, it's lots of individuals making individual choices, um, uh, sort of adapting to the needs of the time. And there is a sense in which the higher ed of today is already radically different than it was even in 2012. And looking ahead to say 2023 or something like that. Uh, I think it's going to be, again, radically different. And yet, at no point can you say this is the point where everything changed. <laughs> you know, right. it's going to be it's going to be this sort of grad. It'll, it'll seem like gradual and and you can't even see it happening. But then if you just could just jump between even now, 2018, back to 2007, you see radical differences. I, I actually have some insight into this because I have recorded my lectures 
you know, in my classes for quite some time uh, since 2005. And you can go back to 2005 and you can see a lot of differences between 2005 and 2017. Some of this might be me, but I'm not, but I, I'm not convinced that it's me. I think it's, I think it's a cultural shift. So some of the changes you'll see is like, you'll see in 2005, attendance was very high. Um, people tended to show up mostly on time. It was rare that anybody be not on time. And you have to remember in 2005, th- at least on our campus, there was no Wi-Fi. Uh, nobody had a smartphone. The iPhone had not been invented yet. Right. And so you can just like look down at the students and it's pretty clear I'm the most interesting thing in the room. <laughs> you know, I didn't have a lot of competition in 2005. And then while the changes were imperceptible to me year by year, when I look now at my recordings from this past year in 2018, what you see is the their attendance is down about say 30% or so. This wow. is a room of like 400 people. Um, there are a lot of people coming in late, uh, many, m- much more people coming in late. It's, a, it's an 8.30 in the morning class. So uh, people are kind of waking up, but a lot more people late than were ever late in 2005. And then they're coming in and you can look down and, and you can see, uh, you know, laptops open and uh, cell phones buzzing, <laughs> you know, not, not really buzzing, but you see the notifications right. sort of flashing on the desk. So it's a, it's just a zoo of distraction. Uh, the students aren't necessarily paying attention to me. They're on their laptops and they've got, you know, different windows open. They might be shopping, uh, that kind of thing. It's, it's, uh, we live definitely in an age of distraction and this is yeah. a, and we knew it was we knew it was coming, and uh, I always hoped that I could be that dazzling teacher that could hold their attention. And, and I think I am a very good teacher, but it's it's it still hasn't. Uh, I don't know that I'm winning that battle <laughs> as well, much as I would like to. You you talk a lot about this in um, your YouTube content, um, in some of your lectures, at how during this shift you realized that you needed to do different things as a professor. Mm-hmm. And um, you talk about how you began shifting from your typical talking head lecture to a different, more interactive style where the students are going out and exploring more and finding their own answers. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's actually started with some, uh, I mean, in a way, like some some soul searching and, and uh, research of my own in which... I actually started doing my own assignments and I started, uh, I started surveying students and, and taking students out to lunch. And I, for, for about a year and a half, I had an open lunch where every day I was eating with a student and the rule of open lunch with me was no small talk. We would just jump, jump right into like the big stuff and talk about, you know, their, hopes and dreams and challenges and barriers and all those types of things. And what would be your opening question? Uh, <laughs> I, I, my opening, a typical one would be something like, so, so what are you working on? Like I would, I would say, what are you working on? And, you know, I, and, and if they went to a shallow place, I'd be like, no, like, you know, what are you working on? Like on yourself, like where, where are your shortcomings and who do you hope to be? say in, in six months, if you could, if you could be different in some way. And that, that's where we would start. And that was usually a pretty good opening into what I think of as a real education rather than 
just, you know, learning a bunch of facts and whatnot. Uh, the real education is this transformation of the self. And if the university doesn't profoundly change you in the time that you're here, then we haven't done our job. Uh, and so that's, that, that's where I would always start is, is just what are you working on? Right. And so for you yourself, you kind of had um, that moment in your life. Uh, if I get the story correct, you were going to study business administration. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I was just going to, like a lot of students, you know, you just kind of, you don't really know what is out there. You don't know what jobs are available. I mean, Um, I remember when I went to university and in high school, they give you a list. I'm like, oh, check civil engineering. That sounds great. You know what it was. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly, I didn't know what engineering was and I I wish I did because I, I loved like building things and you know, I just didn't see that major on, on the list. Like, where's the building things major? <laughs> you know? and, and that's great. So, so I ended up in business school cause I thought, well, I could, uh, I really, it was so, so naive. The plan was just to like, I'm just going to make a lot of money. And then when I'm 50, I'll figure out what I want to do to be happy. Gosh. And it's such Classic. a weird, yeah, weird idea. Right. And, uh, so I, I went to business school did great in business school. Uh, was by this, my sophomore year, I had this great internship lined up. I was, you know, fast tracked to success for sure. And then just had this like awakening where I realized I actually dislike everything I'm doing in my classes. Like what, I just, what happened it, in that awakening? What was kind of that trigger? The trigger was um, my girlfriend of two years breaking up with me. <laughs> so you, know, you never know like what'll what'll trigger these things. But yeah, I mean, it was like this that that was just like reassess everything in your life at this point, right? So um, because the whole plan at that point, you know, I was with her for two years, and you're starting to think like, okay, this is this is now the plan. I'm gonna stick to it, make lots of money for the next thirty years or whatever, and then go do something else. And that something else. I always envisioned that I would be a teacher and that was largely just because I uh, had a, I had one teacher in particular in high school that just seemed to have it all figured out. I mean, just lived a life of what appeared to me to be like pure joy, you know, and that's what I wanted. And so in that time when I realized I wasn't doing anything I actually enjoyed in business school and that though I may make a lot of money, I'd be spending my days doing things I didn't enjoy. I just thought, well, you know what? Who cares about money? I'm just going to go be a teacher. And so then I enrolled in, uh, in the college to be, to be, uh, in the college of education to be a teacher. And then I had to take this anthropology class at the time. Uh, it was just sort of like not checking a box of the, what's called the international overlay. And, that's when I just, I fell in love with anthropology and, and went that route instead. And so what was it that, that caused you to fall in love with it? Like what is about anthropology just makes you resonate and come alive? So I think I was, I, I grew up in a really small town in Nebraska, which is a very rural area of, of the United States. And, and I just had almost zero interactions with people from other cultures uh, I shouldn't even say almost zero. I had absolutely zero <laughs> interactions wow. with people from other cultures. I I can't remember a single time from age zero to 18 that I encountered anybody who spoke a different language. 
That sounds wow. kind of amazing, but I'm pretty sure that's true. And, and very rarely even did I meet anybody who had a different skin color than me. And that's, that's just astonishing to think, but that's, that's how my life was. And, uh, so by the time I was, you know, 17 or 18, I was really longing for adventure, longing for, um, some way to like feel just under, to understand the world and to, uh, to get out there. And so I, I, that's why I went to, I went to USC in Los Angeles to go to school, which is a, obviously a very diverse, uh, community. And so I was living in South central Los Angeles and everybody was telling me how dangerous it was to live there. And to, and this is at the time when there were a bunch of movies coming out about how dangerous South central LA was. This is a time like there's a, um, I think a movie called boys in the hood, which is about South central LA. And I actually lived just a couple stoplights down from where that, that wow. movie was filmed. And everybody's telling me how dangerous it was. And yet every time I went out on even sort of a simple errand to the grocery store or anything, I didn't find anything but like really interesting and nice people, you know, who totally. were definitely totally. very, very different than what I grew up with. I mean, a lot of these people, um, from a wide uh, variety of different ethnic backgrounds. A lot of them were very poor, uh, but I didn't encounter anybody that was like scary and frightening and threatening and all those kinds of things. And so I actually just started going on longer and longer adventures where I would just, you know, walk out uh, into neighborhoods I was supposedly not supposed to be in and just start talking to people. And uh, I had no idea that, there was a job for that, which is, which is anthropology. You know, I just, it was just something I enjoyed doing. I enjoyed going out, meeting people radically different from me, hearing their story. And, and was this experience bef- while you were still in business school or after yeah, you had, had yeah, shifted? I was, I was in business school at the time okay. and I was just doing this for fun. And I even had like, um, just sort of, I don't know, sort of this random thing where I started going down, to kind of the, it's kind of the uh, Hispanic quarter you'd, you'd say I guess in Los Angeles it's just uh, just south of what they call Bunker Hill uh, there's this area and, and there's this uh, old hotel there called the Million Dollar Hotel which was built in the 20s and it's called the Million Dollar Hotel because it cost a million dollars to build back then but it had since been abandoned and nearly condemned but it had been uh, occupied uh, by by poor immigrants and, and whatnot. And, um, they had essentially squatted on it and kept it from being, uh, being knocked down. Wow. And there was a bunch of kids who lived in that hotel and and they all hung out and, and somehow I just kind of fell in with those kids and I became like a, some sort of, I don't know, like a leader to them in some way. Me and a couple other friends used to go down there, you know, a few times a week and we'd find this group of kids. These are all like eight to 11 year old kids and we'd wow. find these kids and we'd just like run around town with them and just have a great time. We were sort of like their big brothers or something, you know, and, crazy. <laughs> and that was just, you know, that, that became like something I just loved to do. And I love to like hear their stories and, and be a part of their lives. And so when I then sort of stumbled into this anthropology class, because I had to be there, I was surprised to discover that, that that's exactly what anthropologists do. And, you know, they just as if things started to click and just kind of like make sense. 
Yeah. So I was just, I was totally on board with being an anthropologist at that point. And I wanted to kind of take it to the next level. Like I was doing these little adventures in Los Angeles and I was like, you know, I want to do a big adventure in the world. Like, and so I started looking for the place that would be the most different from myself and the most different from where I grew up. And I settled in on the interior of New Guinea and I started, it's quite different. Yeah. (laughs) So I started scheming on how can I get to the middle of New Guinea, uh, to some of these places that, that are virtually unexplored at that time, you know, it was was a little kind of naive, I think, to think that there could be places completely cut off from the world. Uh, but as it turns out, I, I did find a place that was more or less completely cut off just by, not by virtue of like lack of, um, you know, exploration and technology, but I ended up on the border between Papua New Guinea and Indonesia, which was basically abandoned and not abandoned by the outside world and not really explored and, and understood very well because, you know, on the Papua New Guinea side, they didn't want to offend, uh, the Indonesians, Indonesians didn't want to offend Papua New Guinea and and their allies and whatnot. So so that border area was pretty much left alone as as kind of a no man's land, and mm. and that's where I ended up uh, going because it was just my interest at the time to be at a place that was uh, kind of as removed from uh, from Western society as possible, I guess. Now, when you were taking this leap from studying business and living the American dream to becoming an anthropologist and a teacher and traveling to Papua New Guinea where cannibalism was outlawed in the 1960s, uh, did you get resistance from family, from friends, or even yourself? Or was it just like a no-brainer and everyone was like, this is a great idea? No, my, my parents have always been really supportive of everything that I've ever wanted to do uh, at least openly to me, it's, you know, looking back on it, I know they had a lot of reservations, not only about this idea, but other ideas I had before that. Um, but you know, good for them. They never <laughs> said anything. That's amazing. Never tried. I mean, I was from one example is like at one point, and this is not even, you know, I was like pretty far into to school. I was maybe 20 years old. I was entertaining the idea of being a rock star and like, and I'm a, uh, I mean, that's just a terrible idea. I had no chance of being well, a rock you star. You do have a couple, you know, viral videos, so yeah. it, it, it might happen. <laughs> yeah. No, but I'm a terrible singer. Uh, and I remember I'd actually like play songs for my parents and I would sing them for, sing for them. And they had to be sitting there thinking like, oh my gosh, this is such a bad idea. <laughs> you know. And yet they never, they never said anything and they were always encouraging. So, uh, pretty amazing wow. parents in that way. So yeah, nobody was against it. Um, later they told me how scared they were that I was going to New Guinea. Uh, but they're super supportive. And in fact, after I'd gone to New Guinea several times over the course of several years, and then I was living there for a whole year. Uh, and my wife was there as well. My mom actually came to New Guinea and that was my mom's first time out of the country other than she'd gone, wow. she'd gone to Canada once. But um, what an experience. Yeah. So she, I mean, to like get on a plane and find her way all the way to this little village in the middle of New Guinea, this is, I mean, it's an epic <laughs> trek to make, you know, you, it's absolutely, it's about two weeks on planes, you know, and a lot of them are like little, um, 
small planes that, you know, over the mountains and whatnot and waiting around in little mountain villages for the next plane. Uh, it was pretty um, amazing that she, she did that. Wow. That is brave. Yeah. That is really brave. Yeah. We actually lived in Papua New Guinea the same years. We were there from 96 to 2003. Oh, nice. So we, we overlapped. Yeah. Where were you at? We were in Eastern Highlands province. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So where you like- my dad, my dad was actually a pilot flying some of those bush planes oh, around. Man. So I might've flown yeah. with your dad then. It's possible. Cause I went to, uh, I flew out of Garoka to Karamui once, um, in that time. And there, you know, there's not a lot of planes in that area. So, you know, if, yeah, if your dad it, was it, flying Garoka, then I probably flew with him. He, I mean, he flew everywhere. So, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of airstrips. So mm-hmm. you never know. Now, when you were in Papua New Guinea, you were studying how new media impacts culture. And what were some of the things that that you observed or learned or can uh, you shed some light on that? Yeah. So it was by accident that I studied it. Uh, Sometimes you go to a village and you don't really know what's going to be relevant and interesting, but you just want to like, as an anthropologist, you want to convey the story as truthfully and carefully as possible. So, uh, so you may go in there wanting to study one thing. uh, And in particular, I wanted to study culture change and how, like, uh, I thought it was going to be about how, how the new school, they just like, they just put in a new school and a new health clinic and uh, a new church. So I was kind of curious, like these institutions seem to represent mind, body, and spirit in the Western sense, you know, the mind being uh, the, the school, the body being the health clinic and the spirit being the church. And so how do these sort of Western institutions come into this place and how do they change the way people think about themselves? And what happened was that while I was there, uh, a, sort of a new institution emerged, which I didn't expect to come. And that was, uh, it seems really simple, but it was the census. And what that meant was that these local folks who had learned to read and write, and there were only about 10 of them at the time. So there were like 2000 people in this region and 10 people know how to read and write. And they are, Crazy. and they're in charge of, of doing the census. And so they go around village to village. It's about, you know, three day walk to the most distant villages. And I, I walked with them and, and we would just go around it. And you would think this would be really simple. All you have to do is list people's name in a census book and they'd go, um, and they just start asking people for their names. And it was really tough because, you know, they'd hear, for example, um, so they, they go to a village and, and they would, somebody would say their name was Awim and they, at first they'd write Awim and then they'd be like the next person they'd ask and they'd say their name's Awim. And it turns out Awim just means taboo. And what they were saying was essentially, I can't tell you what my name is or to me, <laughs> like our relationship is, is taboo essentially. So they would say taboo. Right. And in fact, what, what happened was that, uh, and they knew this going in, but I didn't. And so it was a revelation to me was that a lot of people did not yet have a name. They had basically every, if you, it's kind of interesting to think about how different the world can be. If you live in a place like this, that's you know entirely non-literate. It, it's a place where everybody you see on a day-to-day basis, you already know, and you have a relationship with that person. And you tend to call, you, you tend to 
speak to that person with the name of the relationship, the same way that you might, you know, you go home and you call your mom, mom, and your dad, dad. Imagine that if you had, say, uh, a few dozen terms for different relationships. And so you would use those. And so they'd be things right. um, sister. And, and one of the big categories is taboo. You know, it just means like you and I cannot marry. <laughs> You know, that's basically what it means. <laughs> and so when these these census guys were going through, they would just, they would say, what's your name? And they would say, taboo. And then... Because the, the names would be different for different relationships. Yeah, so you yeah. and I would have a different name between each other than I would have with my children. Right. And so that same person who's named taboo to you is named mom to somebody else and is named yeah. grandma to somebody else and so on. And so, uh, so eventually they just had people invent census names uh, for the book. And they would actually call these census names. Like they would use the English word census name. And so essentially if you were listening to them doing the census and you didn't speak the language, what you would hear is a bunch of gibberish that you don't understand. And then the word census name. So it's like, blah, 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 census name, (laughs) you know, and, and then the person would say their name. And so that, that was just like an interesting little thing, right? But it struck me like, oh, isn't that interesting? These people don't even have like a categorical name. Uh, and I, I just kind of put it in the back of my mind like, okay, that's interesting. Like, does that mean that then they don't also have a stronger sense of individualism like we do? Like, how important is it to have a categorical identity, like a name that you hang everything else on, you know, in terms of who you are? And so that was the first thing. And then, and then over time, there are a bunch of other like, little things that that made made me realize how important media was in shaping our identity and not just like media in terms of how we think of it today like you know um you know like television and and internet and cell phones and smartphones and so on but even like media like as simple as as the written word and right so really my study there was a was about the effects of writing on uh, how people thought about themselves and how uh, the society worked, and and what was so just to follow through with that census thing. What what ends up happening is that um, these people are doing this the census. It, it's really it's a big struggle to get the names down, and then um, they get very frustrated because they had done a census like you know maybe ten years before that, and everybody had moved around since then. And everybody lives in these villages. Like there's, you know, gosh, dozens and dozens of villages scattered all over the landscape and they're moving all the time. And Mm. so they have these old maps and old censuses from 10 years ago and they don't match with anything. And so they start getting really angry and they basically start saying, um, you guys need to move into eight villages to match what's in the census book because the census book had eight villages in it. Really? And they actually started forcing people to move into these villages and not only forcing them, but actually going around and burning houses and, and forcing them to move to the village, to these villages. And this was, this was powered by a lot of other things. It was, you start to see that, that the state is actually running things through the book and the, right. the limitations of the book are shaping how things are ran on the ground. So the fact that it's actually, pretty hard for a book to keep up with a semi-nomadic culture in which people are moving every three years 
um, made it that these, you know, sort of keepers of the book were getting angry and saying, why do you have to keep moving? It's making my bookkeeping impossible, <laughs> you know? And they, they basically oh. said, Class yeah, so we're like, you guys need to move into these eight villages. And, and then it went a step further. They started burning houses and it wasn't just them. It was all the locals were really excited about this because the, the way the state apparatus works through the book is they have these formulas, uh, which is essentially number of people in a village times a certain number of, of uh, mo- monetary value equals the amount of support you get for your village. And if that number, you know, goes past a certain point, then you get a, you get an aid post, you get, you get medicine in your village. If it goes past another point, you get a school. And if, if it's past a certain point, uh, the missions start to hear, start to see you. There's, a, there's actually a, you know, the only way you can make yourself visible to the state is by having a large village in a static place with a large number of people on the census roll. That's how the state sees you. And they started to think, you know, gosh, the state doesn't see us if we live in these little villages that are moving every three years. So all the local people really started getting excited about this idea of moving into larger villages. And they, they started burning their own houses in some cases and moving into uh, these these larger villages with the goal of making sure every village had more than 200 people because then that makes it seen by the state so wow. so that was that was like my research there and and uh, what ended up happening was that the very reason why people live in sort of more remote areas in, in smaller groups um, started to rear its head and, and sort of strike back against the state logic. And, the, and, and what it is, is that um, there's this sort of overwhelming sharing logic, which you probably saw when you were in New Guinea. And that is that if you have something and you're showing it, it yep. needs to be shared. You know, like there's, yep. there, there's no like flaunting wealth or anything like that. You can flaunt uh, gift giving, right? Like it's cool if you want to like bring yep. stuff out and make a big show of giving a big gift, but you don't like just flaunt your wealth and not share it with other people. And yeah, so it's the one talk system. Yeah. Yeah. And so these small villages were kind of an adaptation to that where uh, it's kind of easy to keep that kind of sharing relation with up to say 50 people, but you get beyond that and you start to get people start to feel slighted and there's, there's jealousies and, and it's really hard to make like um, your, it's, it's, if you, if you do have like a, a, a sort of a banner day where you 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 go out and you actually succeed in the pig hunt and you come home with a wild boar uh, it's pretty easy to satisfy 50 people Uh, but if it's more than that you know people feel slighted and all that kind of stuff so so the these smaller places were really kind of an adaptation to all of that and they were also a cultural or an environmental adaptation because you know, when you go through like a tough time, like a drought or something like that, uh, it's kind of nice to be spread out through the landscape in a way that, um, you, that the gardens produce enough to, to get you through a hard time like that. When you live in a condensed area, you sometimes have to walk up to say seven miles or so to get to, uh, all of your garden area. You know, if you have like 300 people in one area, the, the, it just gets to be a lot harder to, um, to produce enough within a small area for 300 people. So 
so there were a lot of adaptations that, and those things started to kind of wear on people. And within that year, it was really just total chaos. Um, there were, there were rampant, uh, witchcraft accusations and, you know, these people trying to live in this, in basically a bunch of people trying to live together that had never really succeeded in living together before found that they really couldn't live together. And did the system end up breaking down? down. And And so by the end of it, you know, it started with eight villages of say 200 people each and it, it, or to go back even farther, it's probably about 45 villages of 50 people each condensed into eight villages of over 200 people each. And then afterwards, it was even more than 45 villages <laughs> because uh, people were wow. just, in fact, it, it almost went down to the household where people were just kind of disappearing into, um, into the bush, so to speak, um, to live in garden houses uh, and just be away from everybody for a while. Just everybody had to like, kind of calm down. They just couldn't take a little yeah, time it was, out. It was kind of a big timeout. And, uh, you know, after a few years, a few years, it probably just about a, uh, a year or so, like it, things kind of went back to normal and settled down, but there was no, uh, no new plans to create these large villages again. Well, um, I think that's an amazing picture of, you know, the rural moving to urban settings and the systems that are then built into place, which attract more people and cause more systems, which then cause more problems. But you also talk about how, and you mentioned this, how media or technology, when new media or new technology is introduced into a system or into a society, relationships change. And so you did you did some preliminary work in Papua New Guinea, but now most of your work has been in digital ethnographies, looking at how digital platforms, how Facebook, YouTube, um, Instagram, Web 2.0 is changing and mitigating relationships. Um, Can you talk to how that influx of media is shifting global culture today? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to like, paint a broad picture of how it's shaping global culture. And I mean, I'd be fascinated to hear, you know, your observations there in Dubai and, and how it, how it's different than what we see here in the U S. I mean, most of my studies over the last 10 years have been among college students on, you know, in a, on a campus in the middle of the United States, and there are going to be cultural differences there. So I can say quite a bit about For sure. what it looks like here. Um, but I think it would be really interesting to, to, look more broadly at, you know, how it looks elsewhere. And there's a lot of really interesting studies out there showing how these things look very different in, in different cultural environments. I mean, the, the main thing, the sort of the big insight, the core thing to start with is just this simple idea um, that, that is that this idea that we shape our, our tools and then our tools shape us. This is a, a, an old idea sometimes credited to Marshall McLuhan, uh, and sort of this, what you might call the, the media ecologists. Media ecologists are people who want to look at um, the media landscape in the same way that you'd look at the environment. And the way we look yeah. at the environment is through an ecological perspective where it's this really complex system in which lots of different little things affect lots of other little things. And and so a media ecology perspective uh, demands that you you take a sort of a complex view of things but but there are some really simple um rules that you you can identify you know 
and and think about when uh, as a new technology enters uh, a culture. So for one, uh, technologies are not unbiased in themselves. Like they actually have inherent biases in the form that they take. So a medium will actually shape what can be said, how it can be said, who can say it, who can hear it, how messages will be accessed in the future and so on. And the easiest way to see this is to compare uh, two radically different uh, media forms. So for example, smoke signals are going to be very different than, than books or Instagram, (laughs) you know, and, and you can just, there's certain things you can't say through smoke signals um, that you can say in a book and it kind of goes the other way as well. Um, there, there are certain advantages to spoke signals in certain uh, situations. Um, you can't hurl a book seven miles, but you can see a smoke signal over seven miles, you know, that kind of thing. So, so simple right. idea, it, it affects what, uh, what can be said, who can say it, who can hear it, that kind of thing. But then you, you then have to realize this is happening in a social environment. It's not just about uh, one person and what they can say and do with the technology. It's, it's, a, it's a social world. And so then you also have to consider what kind of collaboration it enables, um, what kind of knowledge does it prioritize and bring to the surface. And this, this becomes like really important in today's times when you're looking at today's media landscape. Uh, one of the dominant features of the media landscape today is the algorithms being tuned toward grabbing your attention. And what grabs your attention uh, are a lot of sort of um, in, in a way we're cr- there, the, you know, we're creating this clickbait that, uh, is driven towards sensationalism, uh, imagery and that imagery might be, um, shocking or surprising or even sort of semi-pornographic, that kind of thing. Uh, this, this sort of clickbait world that we've created, um, where you get essentially six words in an image to grab somebody's attention is driving yeah. the kind of knowledge that's being spread. And that's just, which that's is almost, good. which is almost opposite to what you saw back in 2007. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, that's, that's a, I mean, it's really, uh, honestly, it's, it's strange to say, but from a, I don't know. And maybe it's not, I'd have to really think about this, but, but there are certainly some ways in which the environment of 2007 online uh, was preferable (laughs) to the environment we have today. Uh, I would qualify that in some sense because um, there are some things about today that are quite amazing and, and, and really, I think good. Uh, The quality of, uh, for example, the quality of, well, I mean, I'll just be, I mean, the quality of entertainment's a lot better. So the, some people call this the age of peak TV, you know, that we've, uh, so for better or worse, Netflix is amazing. <laughs> you know, they produce like yep. really high quality content and you can take that even to the, the, um, area of say knowledge production, which is something I care a lot about. Uh, the documentaries on Netflix are amazing and very well done. And not only that, but a lot of this stuff is free on YouTube. Um, there are a lot of really great YouTube creators creating very good con- content that's very useful. The, the amount of knowledge you can absorb on YouTube is just absolutely astonishing and way better, that's, that's, way better than it's my primary. 
primary sort search engine right now even yeah. for my kids it's oh, like absolutely. well let's go to youtube and find out yeah it's i i'm I'm the same way. And, and, uh, it's been quite a revolution really in the way that I do work. You know, I, I mean, I'm surprised in a way that I've gone that direction, but, uh, I wouldn't have, I would have never thought that, uh, even five years ago, but, but YouTube is just, uh, there's an astonishing number of very, very good creators. Yeah. So it also makes it interesting then from a, uh, content creator standpoint, um, the market for being a content creator is in a way really great. Like more people can be content creators than ever, but the price or the the pay for being a content creator is being driven down simply by the number of content creators that are out there and the quality that they're producing so that, you know, you're a good content creator is now putting out in many cases, uh, spending twenty to thirty thousand dollars just in capital to have the right equipment, you know, to have like yeah. the, the good lenses and the good cameras and the good editing suite and everything else, and then they're producing content, hoping to remake that that money. And uh, I would be very curious. I I've been wanting to do a, a research project on this, and you know, maybe I'll start one here in the next year. But I'm I'm very curious to see like. Uh, what percentage of content creators, for example, who start off with the big dreams are actually making it, uh, you know, I think we're looking at an era of, you know, you've probably seen some of the economists writing about this, um, about sort of like this idea of a superstar economy where anywhere, anywhere where you have sort of this, this type of environment where, uh, certain conditions are met that allow for, a lot of people to enter a market and produce material, but only a few of them will ultimately be sort of rise to the top. Um, yeah. So those superstars will get paid very, very well and make millions and millions of dollars and others will not. And so on YouTube, you're seeing that right now. I think you're seeing like the Casey Neistat's and people like that are making probably tens of millions of dollars at this point. The, the guys that dude perfect are probably making tens of millions and then, you know, everybody else, like that's definitely like a hockey stick graph where there's a bunch of people making millions for sure. And then there's a bunch of people not making anything, you know, and that, that hockey stick graph in terms of economics you're so back to the effects of, of media and technology, that's actually a really important point to be made is that these things, you know, technologies enter the environment, they start changing things. And ultimately they do have really profound economic effects. Um, they have these social effects, economic effects, they'll have political effects and at uh, the highest level, they ultimately even have an effect on how we think about ourselves. Uh, so our ideas and ideals actually shift over time. And, and those are the things you can't see in the moment. Um, because we're all kind of in the water of that stuff, right? The, the environment is immersive, so you can't really see outside of it. But every once in a while, you can get a little glimpse of it. And whether that's like the example I gave earlier, where I can actually look at my video of me lecturing in 2005 versus 2012 and see like, or 2017 and be like, wow, this is different. Or um, sometimes you just, you know, if you can immerse yourself back in a moment and say the, the, early nineties before the internet really took off. Then, then it's all of a sudden like, Oh wow. Holy, you know, geez, like a lot of things have changed. 
you know, gosh, we had travel agents in the early nineties, you know, and then, and right. And all that kind of thing. And you start to realize just how quickly, um, how quickly this stuff can shift. I think, you know, to your point here in, in the middle East and Oman and the UAE, um, 40, 45 years ago, I think there was one school and one hospital, um, maybe only a few kilometers of paved roads. And over the last 40 years, um, governments due to oil have poured billions and billions of dollars into infrastructure. And now there's free education. Mm-hmm. There's free health care. There's, you know, everywhere you have paved roads. There's civilization has um, seemingly uh, bloomed overnight. And with it is, of course, you know, new media today. And um, I find it, I'm very curious. I, I don't necessarily have answers. And I understand you probably don't either. As, a, as an anthropologist, you'd have to get into the mix of it and really to really understand. Um, but there's a, there's a massive shift that I'm, I'm seeing kind of from afar and thinking, you know, the grandparents and even parents of this generation here in the Middle East they didn't even grow up with what our parents might have grown up with. They were, by and large, uneducated. Um, and all of a sudden, it's as if overnight, we have a dawn of new media, of cell phones, of Instagram, of connectivity. Um, when when technologies like that enter a society, what are some of the typical trends that we might see and what are some of the questions that you might pose to young people who are trying to navigate um, a new culture? Does well, that make sense? Yeah. I mean, without being there, it'd be hard. But I think one thing that's surprising about a lot of the, the research on, on these types of things is, is just how quickly it's normalized for young people, especially so it, it, you don't typically get very far in asking young people um, if, if you're looking for insights from young people about how different things are now. And obviously that's because they didn't actually, you know, live through this past. And, and the past can, that even when it's that different, can start to seem so distant um, so quickly that people almost forget what it was like. Uh, right. I mean, I was, I was just in Vietnam and, uh, you know, about over half the population is under the age of 26 there. And they have lived only in a time of economic boom. So like anybody under the age of 26, um, doesn't remember, of course they don't remember the Vietnam war. Uh, they don't remember, sort of this age of strict communism that went, you know, through, through the eighties and all they've ever seen is the result of the sort of massive reforms toward a free market. And, and so there is this remarkable sort of forgetting that happens so quickly. Mm. Uh, I think that's, that's kind of the surprising thing because as an anthropologist, I think, what we're always looking for is like, well, how, how have these traditions of the past actually shaped the present? And I'm actually 
consistently surprised <laughs> at how quickly some traditions of the past can disappear. But on the other hand, there's some that are pretty persistent and that's what makes the study of different um, technologies in different cultural environments very interesting um, it, are these cultural differences. And that's where, you know, without being there, I couldn't really say much about that. Um, but certainly, you know, even if you look at, uh, you know, I have one of my best friends right now uh, grew up in India and he's going through an arranged marriage process right now. You know, so he's like 29 years old and and going through an arranged marriage thing. And of course, the arranged marriages in um, in India are all now, all now facilitated through apps and, you know, online really? dating stuff. And, and it's really fascinating to see like how wow. the technology, like you could say on the one hand, you could hypothesize that these technologies would essentially usher in an age of individualism and ultimately like get rid of this notion that, that we should have arranged marriages. But, you know, people, a lot of, uh, Indian families, like just have such a, like their entire experience is shaped around their families and extended families. And there's such a rich, uh, vibrancy of life around that, that they can't even imagine, uh, not having some kind of arranged marriage, which would facilitate, totally. you know, the bringing together of families. It's not about bringing together two individuals. It's about these two families coming together. So, so that's where you see like this, this persistence and then the technology working in a very different way. And, uh, and again, and then reshaping the tools exactly. to their culture yeah. rather than the tool shaping their culture. Right. And so, you know, and I, I had a, a, one of my graduate students was working on a project in Bangladesh uh, where he's working, you know, with Facebook and this challenge of how to, how should you create the Facebook timeline and feed and profile and all that stuff in Bangladesh where it, the norm is for many people to share the same profile. And this has to do somewhat with poverty and access, you know, not, you know, people only have intermittent access to a thing, but it also has, has to do with how they're thinking about themselves and how, you know, for them, um, they may want to represent themselves not as an individual, but actually as, you know, sort of a kin network or something. Right. And, and, wow. and one kin network wants to check in on another kin network and gosh, you know, it's kind of a hassle to, you know, look for an individual profile and then look for another individual's profile, you know? So, um, so he's been kind of thinking about what all that means uh, also in terms of privacy and all, all that kind of stuff. Like, um, you know, it, it, it all, it, it influences all the way down to uh, what's the login scenario going to be when it's multiple people sharing an account and all that kind of stuff. So, so uh, different cultures kind of push back on our technologies in different ways. And I think one of the things that my student in Bangladesh uh, discovered was just how deep the sort of American individualism um, uh, assumptions permeate yeah. Facebook, you know, right down to like the, the, the fine print in the, the terms of use and everything. So, so that was a real eye opener for me, you know, like uh, all kinds of cultural assumptions are built into the technologies and then they go out in the world and the technologies are very quickly transformed by other people so that sometimes 
yeah. you know, the creator thought they were creating one thing and it turns out to be something very different. That's, that's a great point and a segue to our final question, which is you talk about the three big questions that in the last 150 years we have all of a sudden been asking. Can you touch on those questions and do you think it's just a Western society that's asking these questions or do you think it's something more on a global scale? Uh, so, so the, so basically, uh, this came out of my work in New Guinea and then other places in the world, uh, where you start to realize that uh, basically the, the main questions that have driven me my entire life and that drive most of the people around me and that drive my students are not the same questions that are driving, say my friends in New Guinea or other people around the world. And those questions are, who am I? What am I going to do? Am I going to make it? So the, 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 those three questions represent like three really big domains of life, like the domain of identity, like like who am I, like what do I stand for, uh, that kind of thing. What and the second one is more about occupation and and actually making a living. You know, what am I going to do? Uh, which can also have a moral dimension, of course. And then the third one, uh, am I going to make it? Is this constant concern of risk and doubt that permeates. Um, our worlds. And so I, I would, I, I bet it's really hard to find anybody in, well, we'll start with Western society for now. Like I bet it would be hard to find anybody in Western society who isn't asking those questions uh, even far along in their career. And the reason being like, uh, because the third question is still always in doubt because the world is constantly changing yeah. so fast. Uh, so I am sitting here as a tenured professor, a full professor, you know, I've made it to the top of the mountain, so to speak. And I still can't stop asking that question. Am I going to make it? Because I honestly don't know that the university will exist the way it does now in two years or three years. Um, I, I I'm pretty secure. Wow. I'll be paid for the next two years, but I don't know after that. I really, I really can't know. And so, so then you're still asking the other two questions too, like, you know, um, what am I going to do? And, uh, you know, so for me, like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hedging my bets, you know, like <laughs> I'm making sure that I'm prepared to be something other than an anthropology professor if needed, you know? So, so I'm always thinking about that kind of stuff. And then, and then the, 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 the first question, who am I is of course, deeply shaping of like, what you're going to do and, and those kinds of things. So, so my students yeah. are constantly asking these questions. They're definitely the questions that, that are rattling around as they're trying to figure out what their major is going to be and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I think the bigger question is like, is this happening elsewhere? I think that this is, this is a question that's going to emerge in any complex society that has moved away from, uh, kinship and community as the primary uh, safety net and move toward government and markets. Um, this is, yeah. this is like kind of the big transition in the entire world that transcends even um, culture in a way, right? This is, this is bigger than just culture. This is about because uh, regardless of what sort of cultural values and whatnot are behind all these things, there is a, very massive shift away from kinship and community toward the state and, and markets to 
yeah. sort of uh, so to be the primary you know operation in a society. So so as you move toward the state and and markets, um, you do move into a world of of insecurity, but also obviously it's a world of, of freedom and flourishing and uh, very few people who are, you know, uh, very few of us who are in this, um, I think we, we lament the loss of kinship and community and we try to like restore it however we can and try to maintain it however we can. But we also don't want to go back to an age in which our families would dictate to us what we were going to do even though that would be wonderfully secure, right. To like, just have somebody tell you that you're right. going to do what I did for a living. You know, you're good. You know, that would be really nice. But I think we, we like the, the freedom to choose. Um, and we like, there's, there's a lot of other things that go along with that, that, that are deeply, um, you know, and these are again, still like, there are a lot of cultural battles being fought about this all over the world, but you know, some of these things have to do with, uh, with justice and morality and all that kind of stuff. Like, do we turn to uh, community and kinship and tradition for our, our values or are we going to move toward, uh, you know, values that are based on, you know, larger uh, principles that are based in, in larger complex societies and so on. This is a really messy, difficult set of questions. Uh, yeah. And they certainly do vary across cultures um but yeah so but i I do think that those three questions are pretty uh, dominant in the lives of of many people across cultures even though the the sort of environment can look different in different situations the the community that i'm connected to here there is a lot of creatives and entrepreneurs who have kind of bucked the nine to five who have said no to the government jobs. 60% of males coming out of university get government jobs um, rather than going into the private sector. And the the relationships that I have are, are mostly people who have said, I'm going to do something that's creative. I'm going to do something that's risky. I'm going to start my own business and find my own way. In light of these three questions that I I think they are asking, I know I'm asking, I think society is asking, what advice would you give to them? What questions would you give to them to help them navigate or is, is there a way to navigate these questions in a time of um, political uncertainty, of economic uncertainty, of um, you know even tech uncertainty? Things are shifting so quickly what would be some of the things that you would say to them? I think in today's world, I know this is going to sound strange, but I, I think I'm going to just say that I think a five-year plan might be a bad idea. Just to give you one example, I think that um, I think it would, you're better served by really figuring out kind of who you are, what your goals are, and then passionately pursuing short-term goals that might take you someplace that you just can't even imagine right now. Uh, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs try to kind of develop something that takes, you know, several years to, to develop. And the problem is by the time they develop it, they're, you know, three years behind the curve. Uh, 
Yeah, it's right. it's really kind of heartbreaking, you know, that, to see somebody put so many years of their life into something only to see that somebody else did it a few years before. And in this superstar economy, um, you know, those, the early people get it, you know, get, get all the traction and whatnot. So, but I think there's something we said for like working really hard on something that you can see, um, that there is like a clear outcome for it, even within say like a, a three month horizon or something like that. And, you know, you work really hard on something like that, or even something that even has like a, you know, even something like right now today, <laughs> you know, like, like just take whatever it is in front of you today and just like knock it out of the park. Just do something really, really well today. Uh, those things w- somehow sort of all accumulate and end up paying off so that, you know, a lot of the success I've had has all been from just being super passionate and excited about whatever, whatever it is I'm doing at the moment. And as it turns out, that ends up being practice for something down the road that I didn't even realize would be important. So just, you know, a couple examples would be, absolutely. Uh, one was I've, I've always had a passion for video editing, uh, since like 2001 when I made my first little video and that was all like kind of a private affair, you know, like I just made little videos for my family about little things, you know, and, but I just loved doing it. And so I do it almost every day and I started teaching and I, I brought that same passion to my teaching. Uh, so I would make videos, several videos for every class period. So there I was making, you know, three or four videos a day. And then the, really the first video I ever put up on YouTube, the only reason I put it up on YouTube was because I needed an easy way to send it to four friends so they could check my work on it. And, and that was the machine is using us, which went on to have like, you know, 12 million views and, uh, completely changed my life. And, and then along with that, uh, you know, I was super passionate about teaching all this time. Right. So, so I was putting so much effort into teaching and what's the payoff for that? Really nothing. You know, like there are people talk about this all the time in higher ed. You do not get promoted for being a great teacher. You get promoted for being a great researcher, but I just loved teaching. And so I put everything, I put my entire heart and soul and time into every lecture I did. And it was really only for, you know, sometimes a few dozen people (laughs) in the room. But when that video went viral, I'm suddenly getting called to like, come give a keynote at this place or that place. And, you know, at first it was just a few hundred people. Uh, but I was so practiced in giving talks and, and teaching that, uh, that people, it resonated with people. And pretty soon I was giving talks to thousands of people, you know, and, and it was all just this passionate pursuit of what was right in front of me, which was in a way meaningless, right? I mean, it's, it actually had no effect that I could see on my future well-being. I never imagined that I would make videos or give talks in front of thousands of people and make, uh, you know, a lot of money doing that. I just didn't see that as a possibility. I only loved loved it, and I just did it. So, yeah, I just think people should just just pay attention to like what's in right in front of them. Uh, especially those things that they really love to do, those things that they can't not do and just do those things. And, you know, the universe, I think, gives back uh, 
immediately when you do that. So that in the re- the reality is that whatever money I made from all this was pretty meaningless. I actually, you know, as long as I can make a living, right? I mean, that's, that's, you want to like at least do that much. And I, I know that's like scary and that's part of the risk is like, what if you don't make anything, you know, like you can't even like uh, pay your hospital bills or right. even get enough food, that kind of thing. That, those are real risk. Um, but beyond that, like if you can at least get that much out of it and you're loving what you're doing, you really don't need anything else. I find it surprising in a way that, um, you know, when I'm really, really doing the things that I love, which happen to be like making videos and preparing talks and thinking about big issues and ways to talk about those big issues. Uh, I find that I really just don't need anything. You know, it comes around like, uh, you know, like in the U.S. we have like these, uh, we're very materialistic society, obviously, right? So we have these birthdays where you're supposed to like give people things and and then Christmas where it's just like a flurry of presents. Yeah. And you're just like, gosh, you know, like when you're doing what you love, like you don't need anything. Like, what do I need? Like, I don't need anything. I just, uh, the only, th- the only things I need are sometimes I need, you know, a new pair of running shoes cause I like to run <laughs> and then they wear out, you know, but, 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 uh, but I, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't really, I, I, I think like there's, there, there is just an instant, uh, the, the universe instantly gives back when you're doing what you love because, you know, you're, you're just filled with the joy of doing what you love. So I love that. I think, you know, even hearing some more of your story, I I think of your parents and how they knew you were horrible at singing and at <laughs> piano, but they encouraged that passion to learn and that passion to give yourself to something. And even in hearing how you treat your students, you're encouraging them to to learn, to give themselves to something, whether it's creating board games whether it's creating music, whether it's creating videos, you're encouraging them to be passionate about something and to become passionate lifelong learners rather than trying to check all the boxes. And that if you're passionate about learning and you're passionate about giving yourself to whatever it is, that in the long run, it will be like laying bricks and it will pay off. Is that right? Yeah. And I'll even go a step further. And that is, I think one of the things that could really bring somebody down is like, they could look around and be like, dang, I'm not passionate about anything. Well, in that case, like the proper road forward is actually just to practice being passionate. Uh, it really is kind of like a, I don't know. It's like an attitude you can take to the world and it's something you can practice every moment of the day. How do you, how do you practice being passionate? Well, there are a lot of different factors. Um, so, uh, there are, I mean, there's actually sort of a neuroscience to this, you know, in the sense that um, your brain sees passion essentially as dopamine and dopamine is released when you are pursuing something uh, and there is a hope of succeeding. That's when your dopamine is like really flowing. Uh, it, if, if you're pursuing something and there's very little hope, you don't get the dopamine. In fact, you get the opposite. You get all sorts of stress hormones and whatnot. And Um, and so what you need to do, you know, of course, like there's a lot of like, um, there's a lot of research into this stuff, but essentially you're looking for that 
that zone of what's called a zone of proximal development <laughs> in, in educational terms. Uh, you need that thing that's just challenging enough uh, that it's that it's very challenging and yet it's not so challenging that it's hopeless. Wow. And when you're pursuing something uh, in that realm, uh, you just get this, you get the sense of flow, you get that, that rush of dopamine. There are a lot of other things that can like disrupt your entire brain chemistry uh, in terms of of dopamine. And, and a lot of those things are being damaged by the media environment we live in today. So uh, the little hits of dopamine you get by searching through your Facebook feed and or posting something and waiting for those likes to come and all that kind of stuff. Um, or uh, even like short-term pleasures, uh, like uh, indulging in, in, in any sort of like uh, even like indulging in, in like bad foods that are bad for you, that kind of thing, or indulging in like, uh, viewing pornography, anything like that. Those are all shown in research that they, they kind of create a, a dysfunctional stress circuit to where dopamine isn't flowing in, 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 in optimal ways. So essentially what you're doing is you're taking hits of dopamine, and your brain gets really used to those hits of dopamine and it kind of numbs to those things. And because you're now numb to what is really uh, what biologists call supernormal stimuli, uh, like a donut is a supernormal stimuli. There's nothing in our evolutionary past that is as sweet and fatty as a donut. And, right. and so it's a supernormal stimuli. We, we, we love things that are sweet and fatty because in our past, we needed, uh, we need calories. Uh, yeah. But now, now the donut is like a super normal stimuli. And essentially our brains adapt to that. And if you eat lots of donuts, you kind of get bored by everything else, <laughs> you know? And uh, the same thing can be said in, in, in the other domain. And so it, I actually, this is going to be strange, but one of the ways I try to nurture passion in my life is by not indulging in things that are what I consider supernormal stimuli. I try to immerse myself in just the everyday pleasures of everyday life, like the uh, a simple walk um, out in the outside, <laughs> you know, and like just paying attention and being grateful for what's around me. Uh, it sounds so simple, but uh, by indulging in these very simple pleasures that are actually around me all the time and that I can pretty much count on being there all the time, you know, you kind of adapt to those things and, and you get kind of this more steady flow of dopamine, uh, so, rather. So to, so to break those kind of super dopamine, like a donut, yeah. you'd be to detox from those things to detox, tox from your feed yeah. and to just get out face to face in nature. And is that, right. that kind of like the first step to develop, um, passions? I think that's a baseline. And then the second thing is, you just constantly find ways to be passionate about what it is in front of you. So you may, I mean, most of us have had to go through many years of working for somebody else or uh, even just going through school or something like that, where you're doing something that somebody told you to do. And somehow you have to flip that and take ownership of it and turn that have to into a want to you have to change it into something you want to do and that's a really great way to nurture passion is just to to just take anything in your life especially those things that you don't want to do 
and find a way that you want to do them. And what I found in my own life is that as you do that, you get, it becomes more and more automatic so that over time you actually become passionate about whatever's in front of you. And one of my students, uh, illustrated this really brilliantly i think he came out of school had no idea what he wanted to do was really struggling with the passion question really struggling with like what is my passion i don't know what my passion is and so in the meantime he just took a job at a coffee shop and what he decided to do was just become passionate about coffee you know here he is like at a coffee shop might as well be coffee might as well be passionate about it while he's there and so he learned everything he could about brewing coffee from, from, you know, from the picking the beans all the way to like processing and creating the coffee to the actual presentation of the coffee. He paid attention to everything and he became passionate about everything. And within a few years, he was actually in the, the sort of like, I didn't even know this existed, but he was like in these, the regional finals for coffee brewers, you know, like he was, he was a, becoming a, a world-class coffee brewer. Wow. And because of that, you know, he was getting noticed and um, he then ran into this guy who was a filmmaker and they started talking and, and they just kind of hit it off. And while he was talking to the filmmaker, he told the filmmaker, you know, I've always wanted to make films, you know, and, and they just teamed up and they started making films together. And they walked into a public television station in Kansas city and got a million dollar grant to create a series of videos about um, people trying to live the American dream from different places in the world. So it was like this dream project that came wow. to fruition for him. And it really came about, I think not because he followed his passion, but because he nurtured passion itself, yeah. you know, and became this like, like passionate guy, <laughs> you know, it like creates a, a virtuous cycle or ratchet where you kind of start on this path and all of a sudden doors start to open up. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, definitely. And it's funny how this stuff, um, you know, this stuff is timeless in a way. I mean, I study, I, obviously I'm, I study different cultures around the world. And part of that is I'm, I'm very interested in different wisdom traditions around the world. Like I, and I don't just stick to like the, you know, seven world religions that people typically know about. Like I'm really interested in, in sort of wisdom traditions everywhere. And one of the things you see keep e seeing emerging in wisdom traditions everywhere is this idea that at every moment of your life, there there's a decision to be made. And one, one road leads toward long-term joy and the other one leads towards short-term happiness. And the, there's this distinction in a way between joy and happiness and that, wow. and, and so the short-term happiness is, you know, have a donut or whatever it is, right? The long-term joy is, you know, watch what you eat and go wow. for a run. <laughs> you know, that kind That's of thing. Powerful. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Well, I want to, I want to thank you for your time. You've been so generous and two things to close. One, you have a online course that's yeah. free. Is that correct? Yeah. Where can people find that? Yeah, that's at uh, anth101.com. It's so A-N-T-H-101.com. It's just a introduction to cultural anthropology broken up into the 10 big ideas uh, that 
are kind of a, the main core of what you can discover when you study all humans in all times and all places, <laughs> which is the study of anthropology. And then uh, along with those 10 big ideas, uh, we have 10 challenges that allow you to live your way into this new way of thinking uh, with these big ideas. So just for one, yeah, one of the examples that I really love is like the third big idea is that uh, humans uh, are unique in the, in the animal world as creatures that are constantly trying new things. And uh, that kind of has a, a double sword to it. Like we create, we basically live not through instinct, but through habit. And when we try new things, we we're essentially potentially breaking out of a habit and creating new ones. And so the challenge associated with that big idea is then to uh, take 28 days and try something new and try to build a new habit or try to break an old, break an old habit. So it's that kind of thing. Uh, it's very interactive and fun. Um, and, and also at times very deep and challenging. So, so I, I love teaching the class. It's, yeah, it's free and open. We put everything up online. On it seems website. like that course is almost uh, kind of a self-help, holds you by the hand. If you're struggling with developing passions in your own life, it almost is like a Kickstarter to help develop those things. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And it, and, it, and then it's framed within the a framework of, you know, kind of taking inspiration from people around the world. So, uh, it really kind of highlights the idea that that we don't have to look at cultural differences as scary, but instead as uh, sort of examples of human possibility. And so, you know, humans around the world do amazing things when they are part of different cultures that don't have the same uh, sort of limitations placed on them. So some of them are like really easy to see, like the Raramuri uh, or the Tarahumara, sometimes they're called in Mexico, who can run like 400 miles without stopping. Uh, wow. It's just, That's insane. Yeah, it's things like that that we try to highlight and bring up just to make you question a little bit like, wow, you know, what are the limits of human potential? Uh, that kind of thing. 400 miles without stopping? Yeah. <laughs> that is insanity. Yeah. I mean, I what's wow. fun about that is, you know, I first heard about that and I hadn't been running in 12 years. Uh, and three months later, I was out running like a marathon just by myself, just for fun. Uh, just because, you know, you get in your head like, I would have never thought I could run a marathon. But then you hear like, well, gosh, some people run 400 miles. Like, surely I can run a marathon. That's not, that's no big wow. deal. <laughs> you know? Wow. Wow. Where can, where can people find you on the, the worldwide web oh probably youtube or twitter um my handle is m wesh at both of those m w e s c h that's probably the easiest way to find me perfect i'll put all your details in the show notes and mike if you could ask one question to the audience what would you ask them uh what are you working on i guess <laughs> and that is all that we have for today's episode thank you for listening Please remember to like, follow, subscribe, look Mike up. His details are in the show notes. Ask yourself this week, what are you working on? Ask your friends this week, what are they working on? And together, let's own the future.